Cool. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, my name is Hayden. I'm the high school director here, and I've just got the absolute joy and privilege to, um, yeah, preach over this section. And it's kind of a crazy section, right? We see a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of kind of tension. And as I was um, studying this passage um, of Acts over and over, it just kind of kept reminding me of this other story in the Bible that has a lot of crazy like tension and kind of emotion, and it's the story of Jonah. And so if you've never read Jonah, that's probably um, pretty sensible. It literally takes up two pages in your Bible. So if you've got like a sticky page, you're going to just miss the whole story right there. Um, so I've got this video that we're going to show that's going to help summarize it for us um, if you've never actually read it. Jonah, the prophet who didn't even obey his own message. Who preaches and is disappointed when people listen to your message? Jonah, who gets told by God to go east and goes west? Jonah, he got told by God to go to Nineveh, east, and tell them to repent or be destroyed, but he got on a ship to Spain, west, and ended up getting destroyed himself. God sent a massive storm. The other passengers turned on Jonah when he described God and how he was running from him. Jonah suggested they kill him by throwing him into the raging sea. It's pretty dark, like right at the beginning, this, this book. They obliged and sacrificed to God on the deck after they threw him in. Twist in the story, a huge fish swallows Jonah and he's sitting in its belly for three days and three nights. That's a quick picture of Jesus before he repents. Chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer from the fish's belly. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. God told the fish to spit him out on dry land, and the book resets. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh again. Jonah, soaked with salt water, decides to obey this time. In chapter 3, Jonah tells the people of Nineveh to repent, and they do. They put on uncomfortable clothes, an ancient picture of repentance, and they stopped eating. The poor and the rich, a national revival in one of the greatest cities in the history of the world. Word even gets to the king of Nineveh, and he too repents. God sees this and decides to not destroy Nineveh anymore. It's amazing. God still blesses Jonah's message after his disobedience and everything ends up perfect, right? Nope! Chapter 4 shows that Jonah needed his own message just as much as the people. Jonah argues with God in anger that the people repented. Jonah wants to die again, and he asks God to kill him. God sends a plant to give Jonah some shade from the hot sun, then a worm to eat it. Jonah gets furious, and God says, You're upset about that plant being destroyed? Shouldn't I have mercy on a city with 120,000 children? And that's how the book ends. Wow, what a weird little story. It is, it's a weird little story. Um, but the reason I wanted to show that video is because um, it's going to help us see that Paul isn't just motivated by himself. He's not trying to just do this stuff on his own, but he's actually being, um, he's being motivated by the love of Jesus. So Jonah is this prophet. He, he claimed to believe all the right things about God. In the book of Jonah, he literally says things like, I fear the Lord of heaven. And he quotes God's own description of his character back to him. He says, God, I know that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But in spite of having all these right beliefs, he doesn't actually share God's heart for the lost people in Nineveh. He's not actually moved 
by God's love to care for those people. The only thing he cares about in this story is some plant that just was making him feel comfortable. So in our scripture for today, we heard about Paul, who is being told over and over again that if he follows Jesus and the ministry that he gave him to go to Jerusalem, his circumstances are not only going to be just uncomfortable, but they're actually going to be really bad for him. But he's going anyway. And last week, he told the Ephesian church why. He said this, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit keeps telling me that affliction is waiting for me, but I don't consider my life more important than the ministry that Jesus gave me. That ministry is to testify to the gospel of God's grace. <clears throat> so he makes it clear, even though these warnings that affliction and struggle and persecution and going to jail and even maybe being killed, all those things are going to happen, but the Spirit of God continues to move him forward anyway. So let's open up our Bibles to Acts 21, verse 1, and see how this story is going to play out. And while we go, let's keep that story of Jonah in mind, because it's going to help, help us see how Jesus is the one who moves us from mere belief to a faith in God and a faith that moves us in his love. But before we read, let's pray real quick. Uh, Father, thank you so much that we have your word um, that is inspired by you, that moves us still today, Lord. I pray that your spirit um, would just be here, convicting our hearts, guiding us toward your truth, and giving us the kind of faith that actually moves, Lord. Um, we love you. We just thank you for this opportunity to worship you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts 21, verse 1 is where we'll start if you've got Bibles with you. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set a sail, a straight course for Kaz, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. So we'll stop right there. So remember, again, <clears throat> that Paul said that he is bound in spirit for Jerusalem, meaning that the instruction he heard from God, it's super clear. Um, and so he doesn't delay at all. We see in verse 1, he doesn't take a long road. He actually makes just a straight course for Jerusalem. And I've actually got this map that's going to help us see the straight course that he took. If you want to put up the map. What? What? Another picture of Knox? Okay, sorry. I don't know how that got there. Okay, here's... <laughs> Here's the map. So this is what Paul was doing. He had traveled from Antioch. He took this bold line all the way up here. And then once he gets to about here, that's when God gives him this message. And so he's like, all right, I need to take as straight a course as I can. You can see here's where he was. Here's Jerusalem. I mean, he just he beelines it. And we actually heard there's, there's churches here that he had talked to before. He's like, I need to skip that. I need to be obedient. To what God has told me to do. I'm not going to delay. I'm going to make a straight course. And then we remember Jonah, right? When God's word came to Jonah, he heard it, and he went in the straight opposite direction. So Jonah claimed that he fears God, but he, he obviously doesn't. If he feared God, he would have he obeyed, like Paul. He would have gone on a straight course, but instead, he goes the other way because he would actually rather rebel against God than to do something uncomfortable. But for Paul, there's no delay. He heads straight for Jerusalem to deliver a donation that he's been collecting for the Jerusalem church and to preach, like he said, the ministry 
of God's grace to the Jews that have not yet believed in Jesus. And so we see this contrast between Jonah, who was running away because he saw the Ninevites as his enemy, and he saw them as enemies to the Lord because they didn't believe in God. But Paul runs a straight course to his enemies because he believes what he actually says in Romans 5.10, which is this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So at one point in Paul's life, he believed that he was on God's side and Christians were actually the enemy, right? We read about that earlier on. But Jesus, he confronted that idea in Paul. And he made it clear that we were all enemies of God, Paul included. But even though we were enemies of God, God himself, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And that way is Jesus. And so no matter how good we might think we are, the reality is we're all enemies of God because God has told us, hey, you need to love me, love your neighbor as yourself, but none of us actually do that the right way. We all put ourselves first, and that's Paul included. But here's the good news. As Jesus, who is God himself, was dying on the cross in the place of us rebels, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus does this because he is God, and God is love, and love is measured in sacrifice, of which he gives the greatest one. He didn't just die in our place, but he took on the full punishment of our sins against God. And in that very moment that he was taking on that punishment, he forgave us. This is what Paul knew. And it's what motivated him to go to straight course to Jerusalem. He had received that from Jesus. He had received that message of God's love and that message of forgiveness. And it actually it changed his life. And just like Paul, we're all being offered this same mercy and forgiveness from Jesus. Even though we were all enemies of God, we rebel against God, we put ourselves first, we put ourselves above Him, we put ourselves above others, and so we deserve that punishment. Jesus, though, He made a straight course to us. And He offers us a way to be saved from such a punishment, and it's by believing in Him. So if you have never believed in the love of Jesus, you have this opportunity to believe in him today. Because even though there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God, Jesus has saved you. He's done all the work on the cross by his death. He has saved you from your rebellion. And from our stories today, I hope you can see clearly that there's something more to believing in Jesus than just knowing who he is. Jonah knew that God is abounding in steadfast love and kindness for the lost, but he still rebelled. So Jesus didn't just die on the cross for us to like observe that God loves us. When we believe in him, 
He doesn't just pay for our sins. He raises us to a new life, a new life that is full of his spirit, that moves us from a mere belief to a faith that runs a straight course for and toward the lost and for one another in his love. And that's how Paul was moved. That's why he continued to go straight course when Jonah didn't. So let's continue to read and see how this will play out. It's, let's pick it back up in verse 4. It says, So when we got to Tyre, we sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul, he's on a straight course to Jerusalem, but he also, he's, he's not going to try to do this thing alone, right? When he gets to Tyre, it says that he seeks out the disciples and stays with them for a week. And man, so when we were in city group on Tuesday talking about this, the Lord just, he laid something crazy on my heart. Dean brought up how this right here is something that only Jesus could do. Because think about it, when we first met Paul, right, he was seeking out the disciples, but he was seeking them out door to door to kill them. He hated them. They were his enemies. But now he's seeking them out in love and in and fellowship. They're his brothers and sisters. That, that story right there, that is insane. That's something only Jesus could do. Because Paul, before he met Jesus, he actually, in doing that, he thought he was loving God the best way. And he thought he was loving others because he had this belief that Yahweh was going to return and save Jerusalem because they were in captivity to the Romans. The Romans were ruling over them, but he had this belief that one day, if Israel could just be ready enough, if we would all repent enough, then God will return and he will save us from Rome. And so in his mind, he's like, Jesus and the church, they're all, they're ruining this. They're blaspheming against God, and they're believing false teaching. So the best thing that I can do for Israel, the most loving thing that I can do, is to save them by killing all the Christians I can find. And the reality is, is that, that kind of place is where we're at before Jesus steps in and brings us to new life. We all believe that we know what's best, right? We all believe that we really know how to love people and that we're really being good people, that, that God thinks that we're doing the right things. But until Jesus transforms our dead hearts and raises us to his life, we don't actually know love at all. And again, that's where the difference between Jonah and Paul emerges because there are those like Jonah who believe in a God who loves. That's what Jonah said himself. I believe that you're abounding in steadfast love. But the thing about God is that he's not a God of just knowing stuff about him. He's a God of intimate relational knowing. And so what I mean is that there's this reality of our human existence um, that we can have knowledge about something, but we don't actually know it until we experience it. It'd be like if you were born in a cave and you had stayed in the darkest place of that cave for your entire life. And I came into that cave and I said, hey, so outside of this cave, there's a sun. And it, like, it gives light onto the earth. And when you, when you step out into it, you can like see things with your eyes because you have eyes, by the way. And, um, 
Yeah, when the sun hits your skin, it, like, it warms you up. The sun, it warms the whole earth. So you could be like, wow, that's crazy. But you're not going to know anything really about the sun until you walk out of that cave and then you feel the sun on your skin and you can see things in color. It, it's, it would change everything for you. You would know about the sun because I told you, but you're not going to actually know it until you feel it on your skin. And that's the kind of knowing that God made us for. He made us not to just know about his love, but to actually know it like the sun on our skin. And that's what happened when Jesus came. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with his actual presence when we believe. So if you don't know the, the intimate relational love of Jesus in the way that you're created for, you can ask God for that right now. You can stop listening to me. You can tune me out and just pray, God, I want to know your love like that. I want to experience it. I want to feel it. And I would really encourage you to do that because just like living in a dark cave and then living in the sun, it's going to change your life in a way that you've never imagined. But let's keep reading. So, Verse 4 again, we sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go <clears throat> to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. So, Paul gets to Tyre, and we see that the believers there, are they're wrestling together with Paul because they're not totally sure if going to Jerusalem is a good idea for Paul because they've been hearing about the suffering and the affliction that he's going to face while he's there. And so, they're wrestling together in the Spirit um, about whether he should go or not. And honestly, it's not, it's not totally clear right now what's going on in the Scripture. It kind of could seem like the Spirit's contradicting himself a little bit. Earlier, Paul said, hey, I'm bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now they're saying through the Spirit, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. And I think it'll be a little bit clear later on what's going on. Um, so I'm not going to totally flesh that out yet. But instead of focusing on what we're not totally sure about, I do want to pull out two things that we are sure about of what's going on in this section. So the first thing is that God isn't flip-flopping. He's not just flipping his mind one way to the other. He's not contradicting himself. James 1 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting his shadows. So be encouraged. We don't have a God who works chaotically. We don't have a God who just pulls us one way and then pulls us the other way. That's not in his nature, and that's been made clear throughout all of Scripture. So when you read this, it's not actually a threat to God's unchanging character, right? So that's one thing that we do know. And the other thing that we do know is even through the push and the pull of their discussion, even though they're kind of wrestling together to figure out and discern God's will for Paul, the church stays united through that. In the end, they all walk out of the city together, they head to the beach, and they kneel together, and they pray together, right? 
So we don't even actually know if they end up agreeing that it's a good thing for Paul to go to Jerusalem. We don't know. But what we do know is that in spite of that argument, they stay united. They go out together, they seek the Lord together, and they pray together. So in this section, we, we continue to see God. He's building his kingdom in and through the church, and he's doing it by just one local church at a time, which is such a cool picture. But how God does that is absolutely vital to notice, because we're not supposed to be just some Jonah loners who take God's word and just say whatever we want with it willy-nilly and make God actually be all about us. No, he wants us to do this thing together. He's given us a family to do it together. <clears throat> Paul said it like this in Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So the reason Paul, he's so diligently seeking out the church and why they can wrestle together and, and still come out unified on the other side is because they belong to one another. They're a family. They, they actually believe that they are brothers and sisters because of Jesus' spirit living in them. The church isn't just a bunch of people who all believe the same things. We're a family. And so we move toward one another with the love of Jesus, who's the one who unites us as a family. Because he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, right? So anyone, anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus receives that adoption into the family just the same as you and I. But Jonah, remember, he had this super small box. He had this small box of what it looked like to be in God's family, and it didn't include the Ninevites. And the funny thing is that Paul actually had that same small box before Jesus came in and changed his world by giving him his love. So now, compelled by the Spirit, God sees everyone who believes as a brother or sister, and everyone who doesn't yet believe as someone who could be a brother and sister if only they were to hear the gospel and believe it. And so he goes. And this is something that Jesus wants to do in our hearts today as well. A lot of us, we, we come to God with our small box of what it looks like to be the kind of person that we think is acceptable to God, right? We see some people and we put them in that box and they say, yeah, God, God would accept this person, but not that person. But Jesus, he wants to shatter the walls of that box in our lives. And he wants to show us that he has the power to save all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they have done. Because the family that Jesus is creating, it's not about who we are, it's about who he is. And maybe, maybe though you think that you don't fit in God's box, that's another thing that Jesus is coming to shatter. He's coming to shatter that because he wants you and his family as well, and he loves you no matter what. He died for you. So I want you to know that there's not some box that God says you're worth it and you're not. He died for all of us. So let's see what happens as we continue to go in this scripture. Let's pick it up in verse 8. 
The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, he took Paul's belt, he tied his own hands and feet, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, when we heard this, both we and the local people, we pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. But then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. So Paul, he heads to Caesarea and he ends up at Philip's house. And we last saw Philip in Acts 8, if you were around for that. He's an awesome guy. He's full of the Spirit. He's got this street evangelism ministry that God is blessing. And now he's, he's in Caesarea and he's doing ministry which is fit with his family, raising four daughters, which like, I don't know which ministry would have been harder, like the street evangelism or raising four daughters, but um, clearly God's blessing them both because his daughters are full of the Spirit. And this is the house that Paul ends up at. And while he's there, this guy named Agabus, he comes down from Jerusalem and he does this kind of weird thing where he grabs Paul's belt. He probably asked for permission first, either that or he's just that guy that like invades your personal bubble. Um, but he, he takes Paul's belt and he ties it around his hands. He ties it around his feet somehow uh, at the same time. And he says, thus saith the Holy Spirit, thus saith the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen to you when you're in Jerusalem. So if you were familiar with the Old Testament and you're seeing what Agabus is doing, there's some bells kind of ringing in your head because Agabus is a known prophet. Earlier in the book of Acts, we saw him, he declared that there was going to be a famine in the land and it actually happened. And now he's doing this kind of weird theatrical act with Paul's belt where he's tying it around his hands and his feet. And, and this is what the Old Testament prophets did a lot of the times. They did these theatrical acts to kind of demonstrate what God's word was to them. And so it was this way of saying, hey, what, what I'm saying, it's a sure thing. It's going to happen to you just like it's happening to me right now. And so earlier, remember, I was like, hey, it's not totally clear what the Holy Spirit's doing, but now it's really clear. It's as clear as it can be. The Spirit is, is, telling, or is telling Paul from Agabus that, hey, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And the church at Caesarea, they know exactly what that means because they've heard those exact same words before when Jesus said them himself in Luke 18. Jesus, he took the 12 aside and he said, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, insult him and spit on him and they will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. So all of that, it's playing in the church's mind. They've heard this before. They saw what happened to Jesus. And so they respond and they're like, Paul, don't go. Please don't go to Jerusalem. We're begging you. But I do want you to notice who is begging him. 
And Agabus isn't one of them. Agabus is not one of the ones telling Paul not to go. So this response for Paul not to go, it's not from the Holy Spirit. It's from the church who's responding in a really understandable way. Because they know what's about to happen. The Spirit's made it really clear. But look at Paul's response. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so then the church, they couldn't be dissuaded or that Paul wasn't going to be, and so they gave up and they just say, hey, the Lord's will be done. So here, once again, the church, they're hit with this reality that following Jesus actually looks like following Jesus. And this shouldn't be a surprise because Jesus said it himself in John 15. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But it's to fulfill what's written in the law that they hated me without reason. So Paul knows that following Jesus, it means giving up his version of the good life. It means giving up what makes him comfortable and allowing God, allowing Jesus to move him forward to where he's calling him to go. And in this case, he's being called to preach the gospel in a place where people mostly aren't going to accept it. So Paul knows that the Spirit is moving him to carry this beacon of truth, to carry the light of Jesus into Jerusalem, but that it's going to result in his own suffering. And already, if you've been tracking with us in the book of Acts, we've seen story after story of Paul suffering for the name of Jesus, but he believes what he says in 2 Corinthians, that though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we see that Paul has this idea in his mind that when we're suffering as a result of moving towards people and the love of Jesus, that that moment of suffering is exactly the same moment that the Spirit is renewing us with his life, that the Spirit is transforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And whatever, stru- or whatever suffering we do face, Paul has this idea that it's not even comparable. It's not even worth comparing. It's not worth setting the two things aside to what Jesus has in store for us in the future when Jesus returns and we have eternal life with him. So he's like, yeah, like these struggles, they're hard, but I know that what comes next is so much better. It's not even com- worth comparing. And then this is where we kind of, I think we have a mindset like Jonah sometimes. This, this kind of hits home for us because Jonah was so focused on his present circumstances that he actually missed out on the unfathomable glory that could come from bearing witness to God saving 100,000 plus people in Nineveh. Could you imagine? He was so focused on his uncomfortability that he will never be able to tell the story of, look what God did at Nineveh. He saved 100,000 people. It's amazing. Because he was just focused on himself. And I think sometimes we, we can do that too. 
we're so focused on our, our present circumstances that we miss out on what Paul or on what Jesus is doing in the world. But Paul, he is resolved to never let his present circumstances pull his attention away from the glory that he has with Jesus. And yet, like his, this suffering, it's real. The suffering that we face in the world, it's real. And, and it's hard, and it pulls at our attention. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, hey, this is light and momentary trouble, but here in Acts 21, it doesn't seem very light. Paul's asking the church, he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? So clearly, there's, there's more going on than just the people saying, Paul, don't go, don't go. And Paul's like, oh, it's the will of the Lord. I'm going. There's, there's like a real emotional struggle that's going on here. And, and Paul is suffering. And it, and it moves the, the church in grief. And they're saying, oh, yeah, this it's hurts so much to see you go. And Paul, he's like, my heart is broken. This hurts. And so we're seeing the church, they're lamenting together. They're lamenting the fact that people are going to reject the good news of Jesus and it's going to come at the expense of Paul. And it's going to result in suffering and result in suffering like Jesus. So in all those places earlier in Acts where we saw the disciples, they're suffering, they're being persecuted at the hands of Jesus and they leave rejoicing, I'm so thankful for this story because it shows us how the church moves from the place of suffering to a place of joy in Jesus. And right here, we see how it happens because they're turning from their present circumstances to focus their eyes on the eternal glory of Jesus. When the, when the disciples, they asked Jesus how to pray, he told them this. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see them, they're, they're reminded of this thing that Jesus told them to pray every single day. And then they say, all right, it's time to put what we've been practicing in our daily rhythms into actual real life practice now. Because when Jesus told the early church, hey, this is how you should pray, they actually took him seriously. They were praying this prayer. They were praying the Lord's Prayer every single day, probably even five times a day. So every single day, they're praying, the Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. And now, all of a sudden, a reality hits where they have to say, will we actually set our eyes on what Jesus said and say, the Lord's will be done? They're allowing God to move them in faith to live as though they actually will participate in the Lord's will being done. So let's finish it out. Let's see how they do it. Verse 15 and 16. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. So as we close, we see that after the church in Caesarea, they're saying, all right, the Lord's will be done. They don't just leave it as something that they say and just say it. They actually allow God to move them in faith and move them to go with Paul. Because see, he doesn't go alone. In verse 16, it says, some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us. And that's what we've been seeing this whole time is that when we compare Jonah and Paul to 
to, or when we compare Jonah to Paul and the church, they all, Jonah, Paul, the church, they all believe the right things, right? They all say that they believe the right things, but it's only by the life and the love of Jesus that his people are actually moved in faith to live out what they say that they believe. So that's what we're going to have the opportunity to ask Jesus to do for us right now. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different with our corporate prayer. Instead of doing it before uh, the sermon, we're going to do it after as a way to responding. Because many of us, I think, are in kind of the same camp. Where we believe, we say we believe, a lot of the right things about God. But we're not actually being moved by the love of Jesus in our hearts. So whether this is your first time hearing about the love of Jesus and the fact that he is bringing his life and his love, that he's run a straight course to you, or if you're realizing that maybe you're like Jonah and you've been trying to do this thing just on your own power, you've been thinking, I, I know how to love people, I know how to love God, we're all going to have this opportunity to come before Jesus. We're going to struggle together, just like the church has been struggling together here, but we're going to do it together. We're going to all walk to the Lord together. And it's a beautiful thing that we don't have to do it alone, right? We're going to come to the throne of Jesus, and first, we're going to confess what we believe. We're going to say, Jesus, this is what we believe about you. Now, Father, please move our hearts. Fill us with your life. Fill us with your love, not to just sit and believe the right things, but to actually live like your love is filling us up. So um, I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to move into a time of corporate prayer together. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by saying the Lord's Prayer, because that's what they turn to. They allow their daily rhythms to actually affect their hearts. So we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. If you don't know, it's going to be on the screens. Um, and then we're going to move into a time of corporate prayer, um, which if you are new here, it's something that we do every other week where we actually we get together in small groups of people around us and we pray together. And it can be kind of weird if this is your first time. That's all right. I encourage you to just be vulnerable, be humble. And um, Jenny is going to help lead us in what that looks like and how we um, respond to this together. But my, my heart for you guys today is that um, you wouldn't be content with just believing the right things. So you wouldn't be content with just knowing that Jesus loves you, but that you would ask him to actually move in your heart, that he would, he would transform your heart from one that's rebelling against God to one that's full of his love and that actually moves toward those who rebel against God. So let's pray the Lord's Prayer together if you'd put that on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys.